Thank you, Luke. Thanks, Carson. So, what did you expect? You know, uh, the Lord came and these guys were, it was an everyday, ordinary day when they got up. Uh, James and John, Peter and Andrew, Zebedee, the hired men that were with them, the, the other employees, ordinary day. And they went out doing their jobs that they did every day. They were businessmen, uh, fishermen, and that's how they made their living. Going about life in an everyday, ordinary thing. What do you expect? When we think about apostles and disciples and things like that, uh, we get some kind of idea that these were super spiritual people or people with extraordinary um, giftings, things that are available to them that aren't available to us. And that's not true. So oftentimes we come into situations or circumstances or relationships, each individual with his or her own expectations. And oftentimes those expectations uh, are not the same. You know, we know it in, in our homes and families even. Um, when you go into a marriage, the man comes with certain expectations, the woman comes with certain expectations, and sometimes those expectations are at odds with one another. And they need to sit down and talk it through, find out what do you expect. And that's true in our relationship with the Lord as well. What are we expecting God to do in our hearts and in our lives? How is how are we expecting to hear from him, as Luke was sharing with us this morning? And how do we know that it's him that's calling us? Well, in Mark's gospel, chapter 1, this is what Luke was sharing with us and what uh, Carson read for us. Jesus is walking beside the Sea of Galilee, and he sees these guys doing their job. They're at work. It's, sometimes our expectation is... Hopefully, when we come to church, God will speak to us here. That's why, hopefully, that we come to worship, to, to praise him. And then we think, well, if I'm not in church, he's not going to talk to me. And maybe I'm not going to talk to him. <laughs> and that would be a mistake, wouldn't it? Because he speaks to us every day, every day, in one way or another, if we have ears to hear. And so whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, um, whatever job or occupation that he's called us to do and to be, um, in our homes, going about our daily things that fill up our lives and, the, and each day that we go through life, uh, he is there to speak to us and to draw us close to him. If you read through the Old Testament prophets, you'll find that oftentimes it's when they're walking in the marketplace. They went to the store. And as they're walking down the aisle, looking at Fruit Loops and things, God spoke to them. He spoke to those guys as they were walking down the road in the marketplace, buying groceries or, you know, 
It's then that the voice of the Lord spoke to them in a powerful way and gave them the message for the nation of Israel. He used the things that they were seeing and the things that they were touching every day. He used those as ways of communicating his word and his will to them. And so what we're looking at is, we'll, I want to look at um, John today, the man, uh, the son of Zebedee, the disciple, and look at the kind of man this guy was. And if you stop and look at the lives of these men that Jesus chose to walk with them on a daily basis, and the women too that were around them all the time, these were not people maybe necessarily you or I would have picked. Uh, Peter was a very impetuous guy. He, he acted before he, he, he thought. He spoke before he thought. You know, he just impulsed and he did it or he said it. Got him into all kinds of difficulties. And we're going to see here that um, these two brothers, James and John, uh, they would have been a handful. So later on, Jesus is going to give them a nickname, Sons of Thunder. These were violent, quick-tempered men. And can you imagine? These guys are partners. Peter and Andrew, James and John. And so you got James and John here who have a, a flashpoint of a temper, you know. And, and in there, when that anger flashes, they're ready to fight or to do whatever. And here's Peter over here. He's an impetuous guy, just acts on impulse. It would have been a difficult thing maybe to be an employee of those guys. So this is ordinary, everyday stuff. Uh, Zebedee, uh, James and John's father, he's a businessman, and he's uh, well enough off that he hires people to help him. So he's, to a degree, a successful businessman. And here they are, just going about their business. And Jesus comes, and he calls them. When they left their nets and started to follow him, what were their expectations? And did their life work out for the rest of their lives the way they expected when they walked away from the nets? I don't think so. But it doesn't work that way enough with us either, does it? We end up places we never dreamed of going, doing things we never dreamed of doing and with people that we never would have known apart from the Lord. Look around you this morning. Uh, are these people that you would, apart from church, normally associate with or do things with? Uh, most of us know. What's brought us together? Uh, the Lord has brought us together, and now we have the privilege, the great joy of being able to participate in each other's lives to one degree or another. And... That's part of the miracle, part of the grace of God. So here we go. He calls these guys, and they start uh, following him. Now, a good possibility that John, as well as Andrew, had been disciples or followers of John the Baptist before they met Jesus. So they were men who had a hunger for God. Regardless of their personality, regardless of what was going on in their lives and homes, there was a hunger for God there, an openness to him, uh, a searching, a longing to know the Lord. And so when Jesus comes and speaks, there's something in them that responds 
to the word of Christ. That's true of all of us. How do we know when Christ has called us? Because when he speaks to us, we generally know it, especially at the, in the early days. Now, as we begin to walk with him more and more, um, then he expects us to mature and grow up and take more and more responsibility. But the presence is there, and his grace is there, and his gifting is there. So there's a good, good chance that uh, James and John had already known who Jesus was. Not that he was the son of God, but they knew him as an individual, as a person. Uh, their mother, Salome, was actually Mary, the mother of Jesus' sister. So that meant that uh, James and John were cousins of Jesus. And she was one of the women who um, oftentimes provided out of their own means for Jesus and the other disciples for their ministry. So they were supporters. And people who, um, this was, would be later, because he, Jesus is just now beginning his ministry, but when he comes and talks to them and calls them to follow him, um, they're leaving everything and going and walking with him. Now later on in Mark chapter 3, you're going to have the, uh, the official calling of all 12 of the disciples. So you have the initial calling, and we get some of the, the stories. We, we hear about uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John. We, we hear about Philip. We hear, hear about uh, Nathaniel. Um, we know about Levi or Matthew. So we get some insight as to when Jesus called so, some of the disciples, but not all of them. Some of those stories we don't hear. So Jesus calls these guys, but in Mark chapter 3... It's, it's going to be like an official sending out or a, an official calling of these that will travel with him and go with him wherever he goes. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus went up in verse 13. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12, designating them apostles. Now, apostle means one who is sent. So what he's done is he's got these 12 men that he's called by name for a particular task and purpose. He is going to send them out. And that's one of the reasons that he called them. Uh, he, he brings us in in order to send us out. And so he brought these men in and so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority and to drive out demons. And it lists their names. And to some of them, he gave nicknames. Uh, we know about Peter. Um, his name is Simon, Cephas, Peter, uh, a rock. And he called James and his brother John uh, sons of thunder. And the word that's used there means that it talks about disturbed or violent agitation, violent outburst, raging kind of thing. And so... That was a characteristic of them, so much more so that people noticed it and gave them that nickname, Sons of Thunder. Anybody else you know that were violent like that, that God used? Well, Jacob had 12 sons. And you remember number two and number three son, Simeon and Levi. And these men were violent men. Even the father, even Jacob, says... I don't, I'm, I don't want to be subject to these boys. 
they, um, a man had abused their sister. They only had one sister, 12 boys and one girl. And they abused that girl, this, this man did. So Simeon and Levi decided that was not right. They're not going to wait for God. They're going to do things their own way. And so they went in and they slaughtered an entire village because one man had sinned. They slaughtered them. They put them in a position to where they were helpless and not able to defend themselves, and they went in and killed them all. This is Simeon and Levi. So how would you like to have Levi as your pastor? <laughs> well, actually, I'm kind of like him. <laughs> and that's the grace of God. In Genesis 49, this is what Jacob himself, their father, said about these two boys. This is his blessing on them. And, you know, we use the word blessing in a lot of different ways. This is Jacob's blessing on these two boys. Genesis 49, verses 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are weapons of violence. Let me not enter their council. Let me not join their assembly. For they have killed men in their anger and hamstrung oxen as they pleased. Cursed be their anger so fierce and their fury so cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them in Israel. That was the blessing that their father gave to them. Now, God steps into this picture, and from the tribe of Levi, he's going to bring Moses, Aaron, the first high priest, and his sons, which are going to be the, the first several high priests, and Miriam, prophetess. And God is going to redeem these men and these, this family, and he's going to scatter these people throughout all of Israel, and out of the tribe of Levi, this violent, aggressive um, hard-hearted group, he's going to turn into the priests. He's going to work through those people and change them. And then they will be the instruments of blessing to the rest of the nation. That's an act of God. And that's what God is going to do with James and John, these sons of thunder. Now, these guys, John particularly, um, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, we're going to see a little bit more about the nature and character of this man, John. In Luke, chapter 9, verses 49 and 50, We'll start back with verse 46. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Surely not. <laughs> Surely not. Not among the disciples. These hand-picked men, um, these men that, these apostles, these super spiritual guys, uh, oh no, they're just like us, just like you and me. They're arguing over who's the greatest in their group. It's, they're trying to get the pecking order, you know? And who's answerable to who? 
So Jesus, knowing their thoughts, takes a little child and says, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. Whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. Now that just went right over their head. Whoever's least among you is greatest. John speaks up. Master, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he's not one of us. Now, we're going to get this pecking order sorted out among ourselves, but uh, nobody else is welcome. Thank you. And if they're trying to do the same things we're doing and they're not part of our group, uh, we're going to tell them to stop because we're the chosen ones, right? So if I'm chosen, that means you're not. So he chose us. Those guys aren't part of our group. So they can't minister in the name of the Lord. God favors us, right? So that was the idea. He's jealous. He's competitive. You know anybody else like that? In the book of Numbers, chapter 11, you got Moses, this great man of God, and his assistant by the name of Joshua, been his assistant since Joshua was young. And Joshua is committed to God, first of all, but he's also committed to Moses. And because of the load that was on him and because of all the things that he's having to deal with, there were so many people out in the wilderness, God in his mercy and grace is going to take of the spirit that's on Moses, the Holy Spirit, and give it to 70 men to help. And so um, they're all in agreement on that. So they, they have a particular uh, time and a place for the consecration, the anointing, and God's going to pour his spirit upon these 70 men. Well, 60 of them, 68 of them show up. And the Holy Spirit comes down and fills these 68. Two couldn't make it to the meeting. I don't know. I don't know. They just didn't go. Can you imagine that? God has called them. He's going to pour out his spirit upon them. And he's told them, I'm going to pour my spirit upon you. Well, I, yeah, I don't know if I can work it in my schedule. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't make it to the meeting. God's gifting and God's provision, he doesn't change his mind. No repentance there. So the Holy Spirit fell upon those two men in the camp. Well, when that happened, the guys, 68 out here, at the meeting, they all started prophesying. Well, the two that were still in the camp started prophesying, and everybody looked around and said, hey, Spirit of God that's on Moses, it's on them. Joshua over here, he looks at that, and he says, that's not right. And so he goes to Moses and said, Moses, those guys, they didn't even come to the meeting. And the Spirit of God is following him. You need to tell those guys to stop. And Moses said, you don't understand. I wish God's spirit would come upon all these people. And that promise was fulfilled, wasn't it? On the day of Pentecost. God's spirit poured out on all flesh, young and old, men and women, rich and poor. Didn't make any difference. Holy Spirit available to all of us through Jesus Christ. But Joshua was, was zealous. And so was John, he didn't want to share what God was doing. Very different from John the Baptist. You remember in John chapter 3, where his disciples come back and they say, hey, 
You remember that guy you pointed out to us and said he was the Lamb of God? Well, he and his disciples, they're also baptizing just up the river here. And, and they're baptizing more than us. Uh-oh. I mean, God can use other people? God is using them more than us? How can that be? And John says, that's what I was trying to tell you. Uh, he's the one we're waiting for. And so John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. What a great man. This is the kind of thing that Jesus was trying to get his disciples to understand. The greatest of you must be the least among you. John the Baptist got it. And Jesus is going to say of him, of all the Old Testament heroes and heroines that we can look at, all the heroes, the, the, the great ones of the Old Testament, Jesus says none of them is greater than John the Baptist. And here he is saying, he must increase, I must decrease. It says about Moses, he was the most humble man on the earth. A humble man. Moses, calling down all those miraculous things that brought them out. And the way God used him and revealed and talked with him. And, and he was a humble man. And it, um, I'm concerned when we see in the church... Uh, the politics of power and the manipulation and the control, the lies and the deceit within the churches. Um, different deal than what God was doing. And so Jesus says, wait a minute, to John, uh, no, you don't understand. You don't need to tell them to quit because whoever's not opposed to us is on our side. And there's the job, the task, the need is unbelievably large. We're looking for laborers in the harvest, you know. That's what we're praying for. So he says, don't, don't tell those people not to do that. Well, later on in that same chapter, chapter 9 of Gospel of Luke. So it says, starting in verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven. So... He's approaching now the, uh, the crucifixion. Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? So... Here they are, sons of thunder here, willing to call down fire on a Samaritan village because they said, you're not welcome here, go somewhere else. In John chapter 4, Jesus had gone through Samaria earlier and he got to a, the town of Sychar and it was in the heat of the day and uh, it was time to eat so he sent the disciples into the town to get some food and he sat down by the well. Uh, and the reason he did that was because he was tired and he was thirsty. But the real reason he did that is because there was a Samaritan woman there, an outcast, uh, a woman with a sinful lifestyle, sinful past. And Jesus was there to meet her. 
And as a result of what he's going to tell her and the things that he's going to, to share with her, she goes back, the whole village comes out, and they begin to understand and receive the ministry of Jesus, and they ask him to stay. And he stayed for two more days in this Samaritan village. Well, now, shortly after that, they're again going through Samaria, and they're not welcomed to this particular village. Now, Samaria is not a big place. In Jesus' day, it was uh, 40 miles long and 35 miles wide. That's the, the farthest extent. And most of it was smaller than that. So it's not a big place. And so what happens in one Samaritan village, people are going to know about it. You know, people talk like we do now. And um, some of these third world countries, something happens, and I tell you what, it's quicker than the cell phone. They know. And they know details. They know who and what and why and everything. It's incredible. I don't understand all that, Bush Telegraph, but they do. So um, they're coming down, and this, these people don't want them around. So James and John, they're willing to call down fire and kill them all. And, you know, Elijah did that. But these were, this was an army of 50 men that were coming to arrest him. And his life was at threat. And not only him, but the whole ministry in the presence of the living God in that nation was at threat here. And that was a little different deal. James and John, it was no different. They've offended us. And I don't know whether it was a zeal for Jesus or for their own importance. They took it personally. They're rejecting Jesus. James and John are mad. Jesus wasn't mad. And sometimes we pick up offenses that we have no business picking up. Doesn't involve us. Um, if Jesus is not upset with them, what right do I have to want to kill them? Which is what, he's, what they're saying. Call down fire from heaven. We'll make little cinders out of these people. And Jesus is going to rebuke them. And tell them they don't really understand the spirit that they are of. They're going to revisit this when they get to the Garden of Gethsemane. And the disciples are willing to fight and die for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We need to understand that. They had two swords and they were willing to use them. And Peter did. They were willing to die. They were going to fight and they're ready to die. And Jesus said, you got the wrong kingdom and the wrong methodology. I'm not here to kill people. I'm, kill, I'm here to save them. And he, he demonstrated that dying on the cross. He's praying for the people who are crucifying him. Praying for them. Not vengeance, but praying for forgiveness. That's the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 20, this is they get to Jerusalem. and This is just prior to... The crucifixion here, Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Now, these guys have spent three years with Jesus. Peter, James, and John have been uh, particularly uh, blessed because they got to go uh, to see Jairus' daughter raised from the dead. They were present on the Mount of Transfiguration. Um, 
They saw all the miracles and the teachings and all the things. Uh, Peter tried to walk on water. Everybody was there. They saw all that in the middle of a storm. Um, and all the things that they've seen up to this point. And when you get to chapter 20, starting with verse 20, then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. Now this is his aunt. And this is one of the ladies who have helped provide for him, made him welcome in her home, provided food and whatever else they needed for the last three years. So she comes with a request. And, you know, we've worked so hard for the Lord. I don't know how God got things done without us. And surely, uh, when I pray, God ought to answer my prayers. Because look at what I've done. Look at what I've given up. These people, you know, they walked away from their jobs for three years. So here she is, his mother's sister, his aunt, with his cousins. And she comes and kneels at his feet. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. We believe you're the son of God. So put my boy right here and my boy right here. Want them to be on your right and left-hand side. About a week later, those boys don't want to be on his right and left. And the ones that are on his right and left are crucified. Nobody's asking to be there anymore. But that's what she's asking. And um, so here they are. They're ambitious and they're selfish. They're still fighting and arguing over who's greatest. Well, if we're sitting at your right hand and your left hand, then we're in the privileged positions. And, uh, you know, if there's a chair there, normally only one person at a time sits there. So that's what they're wanting, the ambition and the selfishness. There's going to be a transformation in John. As we can see, it was one that was needed. Wasn't that he was a particularly bad guy. Uh, he would have been a normal, ordinary, everyday business person who made his living fishing. That's what... He wasn't any different in a lot of ways, most ways, than any other fisherman or any other company that made their living uh, out of the sea. But there was something in him that needed changing for, for him to become the man that God had called him to be and to be the disciple whom Jesus wanted him to become. So Jesus begins to show them because somehow all the teaching didn't get through. So he gets them in the upper room and Luke tells us it was Peter and John that Jesus sent to make preparations for the feast. And they had all the food, they had the wine, they had the, the location, they had everything that they needed there, all the places where they were going to sit. All of that was arranged and set up and everything. But usually you had a slave or a servant there to wash the feet of people when they came. Well, Peter and John arguing who's going to be greatest, you know. Well, they're not going to wash it. What do you mean? 
Wash Levi's feet. I'm going to wash Levi's feet. Sure not going to, uh, you know, Peter, I'm sure not going to wash Andrew's feet, his brother. <laughs> so Jesus does. And so you've got this contrast between ambition and selfishness and Jesus who washes feet. And he says, I am your master and Lord. And John in chapter 13 tells us, Jesus knowing who he was, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he knew who he was. And he gets down and he wash, washes their feet. I think about the uh, last chapter of Revelation, it talks about in the kingdom of heaven, God himself will wipe away all your tears. That's an incredible statement. So that, that's the God that we serve. Now we know from the Gospel of John that that transformation had taken place. In John's Gospel, he never mentions his name at all. He talks about himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. And maybe by that he's saying, I'm one of the men that Jesus loved enough to die for. I'm the disciple that Jesus loved that much. And I needed it. Well, we're going to see that later on, John becomes one of the foremost men in the church at Jerusalem. Um, he's associated, especially the first half of the gospel, when they're talking about Peter, he's often seen in connection with Peter. Peter and John are the ones that are, that are doing several things. They're the one that God uses to heal the, the crippled beggar there. Um, they're the ones that have been thrown in prison and... They're the ones who are, are called before the Sanhedrin and the same group that crucified Jesus and they speak out boldly and people see the courage of these men and they say, these are, un, these are ordinary men. They're just ordinary people, unlearned, uneducated, ordinary people and they took notice. The only thing different about these men is that they had been with Jesus and that made all the difference. They're beaten thrown in prison, all this kind of stuff. They're doing that together. But I want us to look in Acts chapter 8 because the son of thunder is going to be changed. And Acts chapter 8, this is after the persecution has started. Stephen's dead. Um, James is going to die shortly, though, although he doesn't know it at the time. <clears throat> and the disciples are scattered. As they're scattered, one of the deacons, Philip, goes down to Samaria and God uses him in an incredibly powerful way. Miracles, healings, all kinds of stuff are going on and there's a revival taking place. Uh, evil spirits going out, paralytics and cripples healed and there's great joy in this city. And they're down there and so the mother church, the church in Jerusalem, hears about it and we're in Acts chapter 8 verse 14. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. These are Samaritans. These are maybe some of the same people Jesus, uh, John wanted to call down fire and destroy. The same area and God's changed this man's heart 
Now, instead of the vehicle of God's wrath, he becomes the, the instrument that God uses to pour the Holy Spirit out on these people that he was so offended at. And then in verse 25, when they had testified, Peter and John, when they had testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. That's the transformation that takes place. From the son of thunder, he becomes the disciple whom Jesus loved. And that made the difference in his life. Then he becomes the instrument, the vehicle for blessing and gifting of God through him to those people he would have destroyed. So how do we look at um, Muslims today? What do you think? Call fire down from heaven upon these terrorists? John would have been maybe one of those guys. Levi certainly would have been and Simeon. Jesus had a guy in his group, Simon the Zealot. He's the freedom fighter. Jesus redeemed them. Died on the cross for them. And uh, as we shared last week, um, six million Muslims per year worldwide coming to know Jesus as Savior. Peter tells us that God's patience means salvation. So why God, doesn't God come down and destroy all those people? Maybe he's waiting for us, his disciples, to start praying right and start being the instrument of blessing instead of condemnation and judgment. Those people deserve to die. Yeah, they do. So do we. God's grace reaching down to a man like John changing him from the inside to where he becomes um, the disciple who speaks about the love of Christ more than any other. And he writes five books in the New Testament. That's the transformation that Jesus can do. That's why the Holy Spirit has come to work that kind of a change within us. That's my nature and character. It'll never change. By the grace of God, it will. Left to himself, John could never change that. Jesus changed it by his blood and through the gifting of the spirit and he changed the spirit that was within John his motivation became very different and his outward action became extremely different John's going to end up at Ephesus spend many years there and a Gentile place cross cultural and that's where God has him go so whatever God situation that God places us in, as Luke was saying, we need to be sensitive and open to his call and responsive to what he's going to do. And the reason he sends us or places us in certain situations is not just for that situation and not just for those people, but to change us as well. So in the going and in the obedience and in the being used by God, he changes us from inside, makes us different people, people that are like Christ. And that's what he wants to do in each one of us. 
And that's why the Holy Spirit has been given. And he's the one who speaks to us the word of God and works that transformation within us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony, the witness, not only verbally, not only written, but even more important in the daily living, the change that we see in people like Levites, people like James and John, people like Peter, um, people like us. Father, we pray that you, your work would be a daily cleansing and reordering of our lives. And as you call us and challenge us on a daily basis, that more and more each day we would open up our hearts, that you might change us from within, transform us by the power of your presence. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.